there was something very powerful in that, that voice and beautiful. And I don't know. I mean, it just, those vibrations go right through you and do things to you, man. I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Joining me today on The Sound of Success is the actor, screenwriter, author, and musician, Michael Imperioli. He won an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for his role as Christopher Montesanti on David Chase's The Sopranos, a singular show that, well, let's face it, it changed the course of television and prestige dramas forever. Michael is also a musician and his band Zopa released their debut album La Dolce Vita last year, full of New York rock riffs that will make any fan of post-punk a fan of Zopa. We'll talk way more about all of this in a moment, but first up, Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to meet you. You've got a new book out, Woke Up This Morning, The Definitive Oral History of the Sopranos, based on your popular Talking Sopranos podcast that you co-host yeah. with uh, Steve Sherpa, who, of course, played Bobby McCalla. I love Bobby. On the show, any secrets revealed? Yeah. You know, it's a real oral history from the people who were there. When we started doing the podcast, we didn't know what the hell we were doing when we started. Really did not know. I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to talk that much about I didn't know what it was going to do. And, you know, it turned out there was a lot to talk about. And then when we had the guests on, our castmates who are our friends and our crew people who are our friends. There was so much like I started hearing that I didn't know, you know, and, and because it was us and it was friends talking, people really opened up. So we did a separate thing by going back and interviewing them just for the book um, and talked to everybody at length. You know, in the podcast we go, every podcast episode is devoted to an episode of The Sopranos. And we go scene by scene. Some of them are three hours long, these podcasts. Wow. And it's, you know, analyzing the scenes and the filmmaking and all this stuff. And the book is personal experiences. Like, I didn't know Lorraine Bracco was offered Carmela and mm. turned it down and said, I already did The Mob Wife. I don't right. want to do it again. I did it yeah. in Goodfellas. It's, yeah. I don't want to do it again, but I should be Dr. Melfi. And... I think to David's credit, he, you know, was willing to consider that and let that happen. Hash, played by the great Jerry Adler, was originally offered and I think almost accepted by Jerry Stiller. Wow. Um, and he was, I think like the two days before he was ready to shoot, he got some big commercial and I guess the contract wasn't signed and he was able to get out of it. Wow. I bet he regretted that. He may have. He may. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I had a commercial like I had to do. I didn't have time to be in one of the greatest TV. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. But that was the funny thing is that you know when when I got that pilot, I, I looked at the pilot script. The casting people were friends of mine. I really wasn't sure what it was. Was it a comedy? Is it a spoof of the mob? Hmm. I mean, it had violence, but it also had very kind of outrageous comedy together. And the other thing was there was no hit series on cable then. People didn't watch TV series on pay cable. They mm -hmm. didn't watch profanity, nudity, violence on TV that much. So we were all like, I don't know. Is it, are people going to watch this? Is it going to find an audience? So I, I could kind of see in hindsight, you know, not having that much confidence, you know? 
Yeah, I want to ask you about writing um, for, for the show as well. But before we get to that, maybe I could just ask you a little bit about perhaps when you did realize there was something special about this show. The first thing was the cast. I knew a lot of those actors. I knew Edie Falk. I knew Tony Zarico, Vinnie Pastore, John Ventimiglia, some of whom, you know, John Ventimiglia, I go back to acting school when I was a teenager. So the cast was like, all right, this is going to be fun. These great actors, it's going to be good. But, you know, is HBO going to want to make this into a show? Mm. When we got greenlit, we came back to do the rest of season one. Every two weeks, I got a new script. And then my mind started getting blown. I'm like, oh my God, this is so complex and brought big and deep and funny and scary and psychological and brilliant. By the end of that first shooting that first season, I was like, this is one of the greatest things I think I'll ever do in my life. Well, still, whether or not people are going to like it and watch hmm. it was another story. But, you know, it was deep into that first season. I was like, this is a work of genius. So you, you knew the work was good straight away as soon as you started getting those scripts and started yeah, shooting that first season. You know, you know, interestingly enough, my own experience with it was a friend telling me about it, I think, after the first season had finished. And it shows you how long ago it was. She gave me video cassettes to, to watch it. And then, and then I ended up jumping into the, to the second season. It was on a Sunday and that was it, right? They weren't repeating. Oh. Maybe they repeated it on Monday or something like that. But That was it. I think maybe once a week there was no streaming and, yeah. and, and that was it. Yeah. And I used to watch it on videotape too because I, I <laughs> as soon as they were done edited, they'd send they'd me like, a tape. Yeah. yeah. Such a different way of experiencing television. As you mentioned, obviously HBO at that time really didn't have any major hit. And this really did was a game changer on so many levels for, for HBO in particular, but cable uh, as, as well in general. And as I mentioned just a minute ago, you ended up writing several episodes of The Sopranos. What was that experience like? What was the writer's room like with, with you in it? And did writing the characters help you to play against them perhaps in your role any differently? You know, I fell in love with the show that first, doing that first season. And I wanted to write, I had just written a movie that we shot at the same time we were shooting season one of The Surprise, which was Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. I had written a lot of junk before that that never got anywhere and was really, you know, I threw in the garbage belt. Oh, I thought that was just on the show. That, that was, uh, and, and was it life too? <laughs> in real life. It was literally what I did. I mean, I, I, I started writing not long after I started acting, but really didn't get anywhere with it. Right. But I really fell in love with The Sopranos and I wrote a spec script between season one and season two. And at the same time, Summer Sam premiered and I invited David and uh, he liked the spec script and he liked the movie and, you know, had me join in. I, I had never written for television, so I'd written a few screenplays and TV is very different. It's a lot more concise. They say, get in later, get out sooner. You know what I mean? So everything's got to be more compressed and immediate, you know, because you're moving along at a, a much faster clip than a film. But, you know, what I did learn most of all from being in that writer's room, being with David Chase, is this really incredible, meticulous attention to detail. Yeah. There's a prequel that just came out, I guess, uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, The Many Saints of, of Newark, yeah. and it features your narration. There have been thousands of articles written about this show, and it's clearly still being discussed today. Here we are. We're going to talk about music in a minute, but we're talking about this show. Why do you think... 20 years later, we're still obsessed with The Sopranos. Well, the people who watched it when it first aired grew up with us, grew older with us. They've always been our fans. And 
I think a lot of people look back at the time when they first watch a show, a lot of it's nostalgia. They got together with their friends and family, ate pizza and made pasta on Sunday nights. And it was a different way of viewing. Sunday night was Soprano night. Yeah. It's very exciting. And then you talked about it the next day and then you waited for the next week. Today's a very different experience. But about two years ago, we noticed there was this whole new audience of young people obsessed with The Sopranos. I was shooting something in Central Park in the beginning of 2019. This kid from Scotland walked up to me. He was like 19 years old, 20 years old, rolled up his pant leg and there's a tattoo of, of me on his leg. <laughs> Weird. And we were like, wow, so you watch the show? He goes, yeah, we're, you know, and we had, my band had a show Saturday night in Brooklyn and I came out and this kid, this 19 year old kid tried to get into the CR band with a fake ID and was telling me the whole story. He couldn't get in. He said, me and my friends, we love The Soprano, you know, and I can't put my finger on why, except that it's just really good. It's just really well done. It is I think really it's good. unlike a lot of other things. And now people can just binge it, watch it when they want it. They can watch it on their phone. And it's, it's kind of mysterious, but really, really fabulous to connect yeah. to a younger audience this way. It's wild. Really wild. Let me ask you one more question before we get to music. Did you like your character? I mean, I know Christopher has his demons and bad sides, but as you just mentioned, he's beloved on the internet by younger fans of the show. Do you think people see themselves in him? Did you see any of yourself in him? I did. As an actor, you have to find a way to like your character because you can't judge him objectively and say, he's evil, he's bad, he's stupid, whatever. You have to really kind of work on a character from the inside. His subjectivity is that... He he might sometimes think he's doing bad things and be conflicted, but he also has his motivations and his reasons, you know, his code that he lives by, whatever. What I liked about him is that he worked really hard at the things that were important to him. He didn't just expect everything to be handed to him. Um, like being a mobster, he worked hard at that. You know, he was committed to that. Like being a, a writer, making a movie, being in relationships, getting sober, even heroin addiction. He went, you know. All the way um, all the way in and was very ambitious and worked really hard at it. I'm not 100% sure what young people see in him. Maybe they see the same thing. This guy who's, you know, he's not a big guy. He's not a physically imposing guy or incredibly strong guy. He's got a lot of balls. He's got a lot of attitude. He has a lot of ambition. Maybe it's that, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, he, he'd be on TikTok today, obviously. He'd be making TikTok. TikTok reels or something. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Oh, just very quickly. So um, I was telling my partner, my girlfriend over the weekend that we were going to be talking. I was saying, hey, I've got this interview next next week. And uh, we decided we've been together a while and we've watched The Sopranos together. We weren't together when it first came out, but we decided last weekend, well, let's start at the beginning again. We're going to start watching it again. Mm. So hey, how many seasons were there? Well, we say seven. They say six, but it was oh, really okay. seven. They broke the last season. Six, they said, was C6A, 6B. It was seven seasons. All right. I'll, I'll hit you up again after I've watched them all for the third time. So, 86 episodes. 86 how many? Episodes. 86. Wow. Oh. Let's talk about music. Yeah. Let's talk mm -hmm. about Zopa. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your band. You just mentioned playing a show in Brooklyn last week. I know you've got one coming up in Seattle as well. Tell us about the, the band, first of all, and then we'll sort of dig into music in a broader sense. So the band is a trio, uh, guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. We formed in 2006. It's kind of an odd history. So 2006, 
I had been in a couple of bands earlier in my life. I had to leave the country and I was getting busy doing some film stuff. And for a long time, I didn't play with any other musicians just on my own. And then around 2005, I really realized I needed to create music again. So the drummer, I did a movie with him when he was eight and I was 25. <laughs> so, and his brother was 18 at the time and was also in the movie. His brother and I played friends in the movie and his brother went on to play in Jeff Buckley's band, Michael Ty's guitar player with Jeff Buckley. Yeah. So, and I did a play with Michael and we run into each other every now and then. And 2005, I ran into him at a party and I said, how's your brother doing? I haven't seen, I hadn't seen him since he was a kid. He said, well, he plays the drums. He's doing good. He works at the Strand bookstore. At the time I'm thinking I need to get a drummer first. I didn't know, he didn't tell me what kind of music he played, what he was doing. So he calls me, he said, all right, yeah, let's go. Let's get a studio and go rehearse. Do you want a bass player? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I got a friend from high school. So they're 15 years, 17 years younger than me, Omo and Elijah. And we started playing shows in 2006. We played, you know, hundreds of shows all over and any place that would have us all over New York. We did East Coast tour. We did a few shows in Portugal and LA and stuff. And then I moved in 2012. We recorded an album right before I moved and it sat on the shelf. And after I moved, it became, we did a couple of shows in 2013 in LA. And then I moved back to New York this year and we started playing again. Got it. And it's been really amazing just to see how different we are as people and how that affects the music and what we've been listening to and how that affects it. Because the new stuff we're writing and even the way we're approaching some of the other stuff is, is different. It sounds different and it's really fun. So has, has it been literally like eight or nine years in between you guys? Eight years. Together? Eight years since our right. last show. Yeah. We played our first show this summer. We did, I released a novel in 2018 and I started doing some spoken word stuff with, on Lydia Lunch on her verbal burlesque tour. Right. And I would have one of them or the other accompany me while I read. So we started working again together in 2018, but not as the band. No, you clearly enjoy playing out live. Um, plans to write more, to record more? Yeah, we just recorded a single in September with uh, the producer, John in Yellow. I know John. And we're going to release that end of January with a video that my wife and cinematographer Lisa Rinsler are making. And I want to go back in the studio. We have, we've written several new songs. So I want to go back in the studio with John and, and do a bunch more, maybe have a new album soon. Fabulous. Looking forward to that. And obviously you're putting gigs together as and when you can, as you mentioned, there's a, as we mentioned, there's one in Seattle. Is there a, any more dates this year? This is going to go up probably a couple of days after we're speaking. So yeah. if you're listening to this dear uh, podcast listener in mid-November <laughs> and anything coming up later on in, in 2021? We do, but they, I'm not allowed. They're not have been officially announced. We're opening for two really fabulous bands who right. are, is there, uh, is there a website where people could go and, and find out where you might be playing? You can go to Instagram, Zopa Band on Instagram. That's Big. the best way to find us. Or my own personal Instagram, Real Michael Imperioli. I, I always post stuff there. But we're doing two shows in Seattle, Friday and Saturday. You can find that on my Instagram or is it the band. But we have stuff in um, December, two really cool shows in December, but... I'll let you know as soon as I will. Out. And then I can tell people on, you know, social media or radio shows awesome. or whatever, whatever. So um, I'm going to look you up on Instagram right now. Real Michael Imperioli. Gotcha. All right. What's your first 
musical memory, your earliest musical memory where you heard music and it just got in? I think it was the Partridge family, you know? On telly? On TV? Yeah, I got really obsessed with the Partridge family, especially David Cassidy, because he was this rock star, you know, and girls were ripping his clothes off and chasing him and he sang really well and he looked really cool and he had long hair and it just looked like the greatest thing in the world, you know? It was kind of insane how huge he was back in the day. From... Oh my God, yeah. huge. Massive. And I, I was a nut for that show. And how old, you know, I don't know, maybe four, three, four, wow. five, yeah. but, um, Gotta know. you know, I think I love you is a great song. I listen to that now and I'm like, this is really good. It's it a, is a good song. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good song. What was the first music you bought with, with your own money? A night at the opera. Queen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing this Bohemian Rhapsody on the radio. I guess I was 10. I think I bought a single, uh, Chez Chez La Femme by Dr. Buzzard's, it was Keith Creole, his early first album. I think I bought that single before. Okay. But that song, it was it was a very different type of music. But I heard Bohemian Rhapsody on the radio. I was like, I, I, it kind of blew my mind. They're talking about some guys being executed and they're singing, like it was very mysterious and strange. And I bought that album. I borrowed money for, and my mother was like, just buy the single. Why are you going to buy a whole album? You know, you just like that song. The album was probably like five bucks. The single was probably a dollar back then. Yeah. And I listened to that album. I mean, oh my God. And just sat there and looked at, there was only four pictures, one of each band member and the lyrics. And just like, like it was a talisman, you know, like just trying to penetrate it and figure out what it was. And I was obsessed with Freddie, I just thought he was, uh, I mean, that voice would just was miraculous. I, I never heard anything like that, you know? Uh, I hate to sa sound old, but the last great rock star, that's, Man. that's my, that's my humble opinion. I mean, there are other guys, obviously like Bowie who lived later and everything, but the last great rock star, I think, uh, when you see Freddie Mercury really doing his thing, it's just unbelievable. I can understand why the, the music got you as well, though, because clearly on that single, uh, you were about to say, I think, almost operatic. It was very orchestral, clearly. Yeah. And crazy, crazy lyrics as well. What about the image of, of Queen? Was there something about that? Because it was such a powerful masculine image you know I, i'll be honest when i first started listening to them there wasn't much image there was just those four pictures there was no mtv then there was no i i wasn't really a music magazine guy at that age yet um there wasn't the internet so that was the only pictures i knew i had never seen live footage of them i didn't see them live i was like 11 years old and so i remember some guy on my block was really into kiss and i was and i said uh and I really like Queen. He's like, really? They dress up in ballerina suits and sing about their mother. <laughs> and I was like, he made that as like an insult to me. Yeah, and I, like, like that's a bad thing. <laughs> I didn't know that he dressed up in ballerina suits, but I, I didn't really care. Yeah. And it was the first cut, you know, where you, you realize like there was something about that, that people found, some people found, I don't know, not masculine or something about Freddie yeah. because he was, I didn't know he was gay then, of course, but there was just something about, there was something very powerful in his voice, you know, in that voice and beautiful. And I don't know. I mean, it just, you know, those vibrations go right through you and do things to you, man. 
you, you said you didn't see them live, but let's no. talk about live concerts. What was the first concert that you went to? Jethro Tull. Hmm. At the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island with a bunch of friends. I think we were 13 or something or 12. And we stayed at a friend's cousin's house and got really stoned and drunk and everybody threw up, that, that kind of thing, you know? like yeah, just your average 13-year-old night out. <laughs> uh, but it was really, at the time, we all liked Jethro Tull and uh, it was pretty fun, you know? What do you listen to when you want to dance? If you feel like dancing, what are you going to put on? Oh, um, James Brown, of course, Prince. Uh, I really like, like, the 90s or late, is it late 80s or early 90s? Like Delight and Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul, those bands from that like period there. I still love that. Um, it was really those sort of, I, I guess, what, the early 90s or something like that? Yeah. And is that, sort of yeah. Those hip hop bands who were yeah. sort of making a play for the, for the pop market and just yeah. sort of arrested development. Um, Tennessee. But dancing, yeah. like that stuff, I really like. All right. What about if you're feeling a little sad? Because people deal with sadness in different ways, clearly. I go further into it with music, you know, I don't want, I don't use it to escape the melancholy mood. I use it to kind of enhance Dive it. In. Yeah. What do you listen to? Leonard Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good one. Do you have, do you have a favorite music video? You know, we were talking about a time before MTV, um, it was just a brief moment, really, what, 10 years or something like that. But do you have yeah. a favorite music video from that time or maybe more recently? You know, my favorite video still is to this day, Mazzy Star, Fade Into You. Somehow that, that the tempo of that video just really works to the, I mean, it's one of my favorite songs, that, that album too, and that song. But the video really just works with it. And I mean, she, you know, just looks so beautiful there. I mean, it was the first time I saw her in that video. Do you have a, a recent musical discovery perhaps you'd like to share with our ah, listeners? Yeah, last Saturday. So we played on, it was three bands. The headliner is a band called Habibi, who I, I love and I'm friends with Raheel, the, the, the singer. And we put, you know, she invited us to play with them. They're great. Habibi's really awesome and, and everyone should check them out. How do you spell that? H-A-B-I-B-I. Okay. It, it's uh, Arabic means my love in Arabic. And it's um, four women, five women, and they're really fun. The band that we played in the middle, the band that opened, I had never heard of and had never heard. They're called 2CB and maybe the most... Um, exciting new band I've seen in a long, long time. Trio just killed it. Like, yeah, really When great. you say 2CB, two, two can two, you spell that out? 2 the number, 2 the number, capital C dash, capital B. They're on Instagram, but they don't have many posts. Um, I, I don't know what they have out, but- no, um, we'll, take a, yeah. we'll take a look. Yeah. You're, you're gonna, um, one, oh, I think one of the, Women in the band plays in the band Mystery Lights. Okay. Who are playing one night with us in Seattle. But 2CB, uh, fantastic. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look that one up. Thanks for the tip. So that's a band that, that's new, but you were telling me a little bit earlier on, there's, a, there's another band that's perhaps a little bit older 
uh, that you'd yes. like to share with our listeners as well? That I should have known, that a lot of people, most musical connoisseurs know, and I never, I never really, I mean, I probably came across them, but just they, I overlooked them somehow. The raincoats. Oh, right. I just really fell in love with during the quarantine. Such simple songs that, you know, just cut through everything and it's just perfect. Um, Ana De Silva, uh, the, the lead singer, um, I just love the, the raincoats. Is there a band or an artist who you love, but you feel like they never quite got the break that they deserved? Fanny. Fanny, I think, who I really didn't discover till not that long ago. I think they're uh, just an incredible band. I know they opened for some huge bands back in the day, like in the 70s. Maybe a lot of people don't know them, but uh, they're fantastic. They, they were also, by the way, I, I wish I could tell you that I had this in my brain. I didn't. I looked it up while we were talking. Apparently the first all-female rock band to achieve any kind of success. Yeah. The, the first to achieve That's amazing. But yet... You know, most people don't know them, right? No, no, no. But, you know, because we're, we're talking, you know, 50 years later now, obviously, but in the in the early 1970s, they had a little bit of success, but nobody would know them today unless, yeah. you know, somebody like you said, hey, check out Fanny. Whoa, they're so good. And w see some of them live footage of videos from, I think, TV specials, because it's just, it's really infectious and it's really uplifting. And there's something really beautiful and powerful about these women and what they did then. Uh, they also do a cover of Badge by Cream. Interesting. That I think I like better. Um, and they do Hey Bulldog, which is a good cover. But their original stuff is is tremendous as well. I, I, they are so beautiful and good. I love them. I'm, I'm, I'm noticing, if you don't mind me pointing it out, that these last three bands you've talked to me about are all women. I'm noticing a trend. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in some of my favorite rock stars like PJ Harvey. Um, I, I mean, I'm a huge Courtney Love fan. I mean, Live Through This is just a masterpiece. And I think Sunset Strip is one of the great rock songs ever. Um, I really do. The ride, the songwriting on that is, and her performance on that song, fucking amazing. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Is there a, an artist or a band um, that perhaps you don't necessarily tell people that you like, but you're going to tell us right now? I mean, you know, I, I'm never afraid to tell anybody I like anything, but maybe the Carpenters would be under guilty pleasure. I mean, although I, songs. I don't know how guilty that is. I mean, Superstar is one of my favorite songs of all time. I mean, and I, I mean, obviously Leon Russell, one of the great songwriters ever, but their version of that is Sonic Youth's version is really good too. But but oh, it is a good version. Yeah, yeah, the Carpenters, uh, the Superstar is just hauntingly gorgeous. It's amazing oh, when yeah. you when you when you hear people interpret those songs and you get to realize how good those songs really were. Ah. Oh yeah. All right. Well, first up Michael, I want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to hang out with you for uh, 40 minutes and talk a little bit about what you do, you know, your 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 acting, your art and your music. Um how are you feeling right now? I always like to sort of wrap this up by asking uh, where you're at right now. I feel optimistic right now. Yeah, I feel optimistic. Some of it's from doing shows, uh, and we have kind of a younger audience, the band, uh, which is really nice, but I have a lot of optimism and faith in the younger generation. I have a lot more faith in them than I do in our, our generation, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. I think they're a lot more open-minded, 
and cooler about a lot of things than, than certainly, you know, my kind of circle was when I was a kid. Yeah, they're very, they're very different. When I talk to my 18 year old kids and I think about who I was at 18, it's just like, I don't know, it's just completely different. They're so much yeah, more clued in. Yes, very much more clued in and very more, very much more open-minded and, and, you know, which is huge, I think. It's been great talking to you, mate. Thank you so much for taking a minute and talking to us on The Sound of Success. Same, Nick. It was a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. Hold up. 